What am I supposed to do? You're supposed to tell the listeners who is our guest for today. Our guest today is mm-hmm. Professor Carissa Hesek from the UNC Law School. Very careful enunciation. Isn't it? That's ironic, isn't it? What just happened? <laughs> <laughs> Not entirely unexpected. It's like rain on your wedding day, isn't it? Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> And we're going to talk to her paper about uh, the myth of common law crimes. I think we're going to talk to her about the paper. What did I say? I think you said we're going to talk to her paper. Oh, right. But so we're going to talk to It's early. It's early. So it could be I'm mishearing you. It could be you're misspeaking. It could be some of both. We're going to talk to her about her paper. If her paper has achieved sentience, I think we actually should also talk to the paper. Uh, uh, just I think we'd make some news with that. That seems like a flippant kind of law professor comment when somebody's questioning their view about something. It's like, instead of talk to the hand, it's talk to the paper. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, And she's also written uh, an interesting piece about uh, law professor norms on Twitter. We're probably, I I don't know if we're going to have time for that one. We might not because it's, we are. uh, We're on a tight schedule. We are on a a, a tight schedule. Two of the three of us involved have hard engagements. Timeouts. Yeah. 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 So um, our listeners will be thrilled to hear that, <laughs> I'm sure. Although once we start talking to Carissa, I'm sure they will wish it could go on and on and on and on. As as I will, but um, sadly that is not to be. Okay, let me let me see if I can. Um, I've been singing the the Skype theme in my head all morning after I've been testing it. You know, and then the you thing, got me doing it. Yeah. Bum ba dum bum ba dum bum. Are you going to join in? No. Why not? You were a second ago because you. Re- I know, but you're recording now. Yeah. So so. It's when we added lyrics that it, we really started to cook with gas. <laughs> Will it connect? <laughs> Will it reset the settings? I don't... <laughs> uh, no and yes. Yeah, I think I'm, we're the... I'm an auto-tune that, by the way. Great. So that's going to sound... Hold on. Weren't you yourself tuning it? Why do you need to auto-tune it? I was trying, when I, but by, with auto-tune, I can make myself sound... You just make it totally excellent. Yeah. I mean, like, uh, like you know, what, what's his name? Uh, Pavarotti. Mm. Mm-hmm. That's kind of what I'm shooting for there. Yeah. Okay. Might be you were hitting some highs there, so it might be more like Ariana Grande, but you know, whatever. Pick your favorite artist. Hi, I'm going to try not to hang up on you again. That's you sound pretty good now actually. Doesn't that okay. sound better? It does. Yeah. yeah. I don't know what happened. Maybe it's cuz it's only audio, but it it sounds better. Oh, okay. So we don't have a lot of time. So we, we got to get right, right to this, Chris. I'm ready. No, no. I'm ready. <laughs> you need not apologize. You're great. Right. I can't use Skype, but I'm great. Ah, <laughs> that does not distinguish you from any other human being on the planet. <laughs> you know, nobody can use Skype exactly. It, it's constantly changing. Joe you know, ran across your paper um, about common law crimes. Uh, what's the title the of it? The Myth of Common Law Crime. And I read it and am kind of just blown away because it touches on so many kind of things that like I'm kind of intuitively picking up around me, but it kind of brings so much together in one paper. Didn't you have the same experience, Joe? Uh, I did. And I also had occasion, although I didn't realize you, you would talk about it in the way that you did when I when I uh, invited you, but I had, I had occasion to look at this very early uh, U.S. Supreme Court case, United States against uh, Hudson. Uh, did I get that name right? The 1812 case denying? Yeah, yeah. That, yeah. So, A lot of people call it Hudson. Some people call it Hudson and Goodwin. Yes. And I don't quite understand why the um, people refer to it that way. But um, I had occasion to run across the United States against Hudson in the context of this paper I was writing about Erie. And uh, so fi- figuring out where the Supreme Court was on the nature of common law as a federal court exercise in the 
1800s and then leading up to Swift against Tyson and then that getting overturned in Erie. So um, I sort of was digging back to those earlier things, Hudson being on the criminal side and then Wheaton against Peters, uh, a Supreme Court case uh, that is famous for denying the copyrightability of judicial opinions. But along the way, the court says in Wheaton of the civil law side, the same thing it says about the criminal law side in Hudson, namely, there is no general federal common law, um, which they then, and it sounds like they're saying something that would make Swift against Tyson impossible. But of course, we know that isn't true. So can I do something now? Uh, now that I've just loaded the jargon yes, up to yes, an unbelievable yeah, yeah. degree. <laughs> this is, you've just ladled on this. Is, Carissa, what Joe is trying to do here is is kind of shake loose the casual listeners, right? Just, <laughs> it's let's not true. It's retain, not true. <laughs> I get it. I get it. It makes total sense. Uh, the, the people who are who are still listening to my voice are really hardcore. Mm. And, and it's going to make for a, a great uh, experience all around. But what, no, look, I let me say I totally appreciate what Joe's saying. I'm I'm actually married to a law professor who teaches civil procedure. Mm. And I talked about this paper for about two or three years before I finally managed to write it. And um and he would say <laughs> clearly either wanting me to be done talking about it or because he was trying to engage, isn't this really just about Erie? Mm. <laughs> like, nice. No, it's not. It's not about Erie. I'm not gonna tell him I'm not going to tell him that someone else just asked me if this isn't this paper. Just oh, I'm I'm totally writing an email uh, when we're done. Um, but because well, you that's better than what, that's better than what I get from my spouse, who is a midwife, who if I talk about my paper, will say, "Oh, that's nice." Right. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, and if you, I think you managed not to cite Erie. I think you're right. And you certainly managed not to cite Wheaton against Peters let, because almost no one does. Okay, let me, on, let me the, take, on, the, on the point of that I described. Okay, so we're, we have a lot to talk about. We have we have limited time. So let me take a crack at like just outlining the paper. Can I do that? Yes. Is that okay? Yeah. Chris, do you mind if I do it? And that sounds then, great. I, we find this is helpful because if I try to lay it out, then you can tell me everything that's wrong with it. It kind of helps the conversation. You know, it helps me a lot, right? So you start with the kind of conventional wisdom, schoolhouse rock conceptual model of crimes. Um, and of criminal, of criminal law. law, right? And I, I would also describe this in um, as kind of the modern law student's typical sociology of formalism, right? And, mm. and thinking about how things work, right? right. And, and that is like uh, for crimes, like things need to be kind of posted in advance, almost like in an ancient sen- sense, like posted somewhere. So basically, crimes need to be like written down in advance through statutes, and it's the legislature's job to do the legislating, the executive's job to do the executing, and the uh, judiciary's job to do the adjudicating, right? And so that's the conventional wisdom, and the conventional wisdom also was that it served different interests, like writing things down in advance rather than proceeding through a common law method where judges, you know, well, decide a case and then decide a next the next case based on the cases that came before and elaborate principles over time in cases, just like they do in tort, contract, uh, and, and, and in other areas of law. Um, they have done that. They did that in criminal law. Um, and But the move to statutes is thought to be justified by giving better notice. Like you got to know what the crimes are in advance of being uh, uh, put under penalty of imprisonment or, or other kind of criminal law-like sanctions. Uh, that there's better democratic accountability because legislatures are democratically uh, elected. Uh, that it serves separation of powers interest in that schoolhouse rock kind of model. Um, that it is anti-totalitarian. Um, in the sense that it cabins discretion, which might be used abusively, and that it leads to greater uniformity and deterrence. And what you do in the paper is is to point out that not only is common law criminal law uh, kind of an old tradition, but it persists into our present day in ways that most people think, you know, most law students learn. 
uh, in the case that Joe mentioned earlier or, or, or elsewhere that we don't have common law crimes anymore, that it's all been replaced with statute. And you lay out in the paper how the common law still governs a lot of criminal adjudication, both through um, the definition of uh, crimes in statutes in different ways. So if you define crimes with words like reasonable in them or you leave gaps, that leaves space for courts to elaborate what the law really is. Um, also, uh, legislatures facilitate this and sometimes they incorporate common law – sometimes they incorporate the common law wholesale by saying, you know, this you – know, Explicitly. Yeah, explicitly. Yeah. Um, and then also there's this element of – leaving it to the prosecutor to decide when and how to prosecute. Before you get to prosecutor, there are, Carissa, there are some states, aren't there, that that actually affirmatively say that their judiciaries in those states have the power to make common law crimes. That's right. Um, And it's not it's not a a small number of states. I mean, there are more than a dozen states that um, the legislatures have enacted statutes saying that um, that their judges can, you know, sort of continue to develop new crimes using the common law process. So, so if it's more than a dozen, it's like that's 25 percent of the states. That's a lot. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. And I want to go over some of the other examples. You've got some really fascinating examples here. But, um, but I, 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 yeah. I interrupted you, Christian. You were talking about prosecutors were also a place where you could have discretion. Yeah. As opposed to you know, judges just defining new crimes is a lot of discretion, but That's you a were lot talking of, about prosecutors. But, but, but if, if there's like a lot of crime, a potentially chargeable crime out there and prosecutors have a lot of discretion about who to charge for what crimes and when and for how long and how much, uh, how much leverage to use, then the system is really being driven by kind of po- prosecutorial rules, which are not written down. Um, well, sometimes there are rules written down, but, uh, but they aren't uh, this whole practice of who to charge and when is not always reduced. Well, it's not reduced to statute, at least. Um, and, and so that's a kind of common law, but operating within the executive. Um, and then you give in the paper, then you move to reasons why codification through statute often results in very broad, imprecise, and harsh punitive regimes. The result of all of this is basically to delegate to prosecutors because of the plea bargain economy that we have. And then finally, and the, you know, so this is just to sum up and then we can get into the details. Finally, you kind of go back through those rule of law values and you question with respect to each one whether the common law actually does a better job, or at least arguably does a better job. Um, and I think make, make the case rather convincingly that uh, statutory criminal law actually doesn't serve, at least in the system that we have, these values very well at all. So for example, with notice, it's really a fiction that people know the criminal code because it's written down. And you make a pretty good argument that people probably know that kind of handful of cr- common law crimes better than they know the details of all the many statutory crimes that exist, both at the federal and state level. In fact, I would, you know, yesterday this news about Trump suborning, potentially suborning perjury came out. And one of the games I saw on Twitter was for various law professors to say, actually, there's this part of the U.S. code which makes it illegal to do this in this way and that way. And there are like at least three different statutory mm. provisions that I saw. And like, I think people would generally know that it's probably a crime to lie to Congress or to try to get someone to lie to Congress. But <laughs> like, the details of those statutory regimes, of course, it's not any, you know, because they were written down doesn't make that knowledge more likely in kind of the average person. All right. So I don't want to go through all the details of the of that latter argument because I think we get into it. But is that the outline that you had in mind? Yeah, no, definitely. I mean, I'd um, it, in some ways, I'd say that the the, the title of the paper is almost a, a little bit of a, a misnomer. It says the myth of common law crimes. And there's probably you know, there's probably two myths. There's the descriptive myth, right, that we used to have common law crimes, but we've shifted to this statutory regime and common law crimes sort of don't exist and aren't authorized anymore. And that's not necessarily true, but it's it's 
it's not true in a formal sense in some states, and then it's not true as sort of a practical matter in all states, given the way statutes are written. Um, and then the the second myth is a, I think it's a normative myth. Um, you know, you talked about law students having this sort of formalist view of the law. I mean, they have that view in part because of Schoolhouse Rock and 10th grade civics, but they also have that view because we teach that to them, right? This, this, this shift to to statutes, um, we sell that in the first year common in the first year criminal law class as this very positive thing that developed in America. We talk about how written statutes have all of these virtues associated with it. We don't do a very good job explaining to our students that that's actually sort of not what legislatures have done with this power. Instead, they've decided to write really, really broad not particularly clear statutes and then give really high sentences to prosecutors as a tool so that the prosecutors essentially sort of have the power to get people to plea bargain and then also the power to decide what they'll actually punish people for. I mean, I, um, you know, your reference to the supporting perjury yeah. <laughs> example um, is, a, is a really good one. But we actually saw that play out, that sort of idea that prosecutors have their own views of what's legal or illegal. We saw that, I think, when James Comey went to testify before Congress about why he wasn't going to recommend charges against Hillary Clinton, even though her having her emails on this server arguably violated a federal statute about mishandling classified information. He testified to Congress that Department of Justice only brought charges in those cases if there were certain aggravating factors present. So basically, the Department of Justice had a broad statute and in some ways wrote a narrower statute that they were actually right. enforcing. Nobody knows what those factors are. I mean, we know that everyone doesn't get charged for all of the things that they do that technically run afoul of all of the laws. But we don't know what will trigger um, enforcement by prosecutors. It, it's interesting because um, in the in the land use context, I think somewhat famously, a lot of jurisdictions will downzone property to only allow, like, you know, the, it basically will, will zone property that's already used and then zone a lot of property in which they expect development as like agricultural open or, or some minimal zoning which doesn't allow for much and then use that as a store of value to extract concessions in exchange for development. And here you describe a very similar kind of scenario where, where, where government, because it has this kind of coercive power and leverage, can create laws which basically increase the value on their side of an ultimate plea bargain. Oh, yeah. You're, you're basically able to like create currency in the land use context in a, in a, a zoning um, negotiation with a developer and here in a plea bargain with a prosecutor. I thought that was a fascinating part oh, definitely. of the paper. Yeah, yeah and, and, and just to be clear, like this isn't, um, this isn't a tiny piece of what happens in the criminal courts. It's a very big piece of what happens in criminal cases. Um, you know, if you if you were watching the the confirmation uh, hearings earlier this week um, for Barr, who's been nominated to be attorney general again, <laughs> um, he said that, uh, you know, the federal government needs drug laws so that they can go after violent gangs. Like there's no there's no pretending that we've written laws with punishments assigned to them that we think are appropriate for that particular behavior. We've written laws that allow us to go after people who are doing other things, but then prosecutors don't have to prove those other things, right? Yeah, it's, so it's fascinating because this this critique also, I mean, this is 
one of the building blocks of, of your critique of one of the cores of the um, normative justifications for statutes, right? That's the separation of powers uh, justification. And your argument, I think, is really powerful that that rather than, you know, the legislature just legislating, the exec- I- I- executive just making its own decisions and then everything is checked by a judge, uh, the plea bargain economy we have, which is the, just a, you know, to a first order of approximation, like the entirety of criminal law in the United States, uh, involves kind of a collusion between the legislature and the executive to increase the power of the government vis-a-vis uh, criminal defendants. And because these are pled out, um, the, the judges have basically no say. And so the choice is not between a schoolhouse rock model where everybody does their job. It's between a system in where um, uh, a common law system where judges have a lot of power. Uh, well, I, so I'm going to get back into that and question whether this would change the plea bargain economy. But you might think it's like in a common law system, judges have a certain power over substantive definition and the executive obviously still has the power to prosecute. But maybe the, the critique is, well, that cuts out the legislature, the democratically accountable branch. But the alternative is not the schoolhouse rock model. It's the one that we actually have, which is the one where the legislature and the executive are kind of collusively working together um, to cut out the judiciary. Yeah. And, and by the way, and I just want to be very clear here, um, I, the judiciary could push back if they wanted to. And you see it infrequently, but you see it, right? There's a, a judge right now in the District of West Virginia who is not allowing um, charge bargaining anymore in his courtroom. So charge bargaining is um, it's a specific type of plea bargain where, uh, you know, a prosecutor and a defendant, you know, a prosecutor will charge a defendant with a really serious crime or or series of, of serious crimes. And then in return for the guilty plea, the prosecutor will dismiss some of those charges, usually the charges that carry like mandatory minimums um, uh, or the highest statutory penalties. And that happens very frequently, especially in federal court for for drug cases because they have all sorts of statutes that they can add on, like a five-year mandatory minimum sentence if the person had a gun. Um, So anyways, so this judge uh, has said he's not going to (laughs) allow the dismissal of these charges um, in his courtroom. So basically, he's not going to allow charge bargaining anymore. I don't actually know what's happening (laughs) in West Virginia, if that means all the other, (laughs) they're just trying to get all their drug cases in front of other judges or what. But, um, but but it's really clear, like judges helped drive like the plea bargaining revolution in this country. And and they most of them are on board with it because it helps clear their dockets. Well, many of them are former prosecutors as well. They come to it with an ex- set of experiences that show them the utility of that from the prosecutor's point of view. That's true. That's definitely true. But um, but I also think it's probably worth noting that um, even the judges who had mostly uh, civil law backgrounds, they don't they don't tend to push back on these things either. So if that judge doesn't allow charge bargaining, it's not obvious to me what the effect of that would be. I haven't really thought about it. I mean, because, you <laughs> I don't know, because it's not <laughs> like know. in the in isolation, everything will proceed the same. You know, it could lead to prosecutors not charging as much because prosecutors have an incentive to like clear cases too, right? And and so maybe there'll be less upcharging um, and therefore criminal defendants will be better off. Um, but maybe... Maybe not, you know, maybe because, you know, I, I don't know, I don't, I don't know the political economy of how that, that bargaining will go. Do you have any ideas? Well, I'm, I'm really glad that you highlighted it because um, that, that question, right, whether um, this is about dismissing charges that have already been brought or threatening to bring charges, additional charges if you don't plead, I think that that sort of, um, 
those two possibilities in some way are probably what ended up insulating plea bargaining from constitutional review in the first place. Plea bargaining, let's be clear, plea bargaining has been around for a very, very, very long time. But the U.S. Supreme Court didn't sign off on it until the second half of the 20th century. And um, there was a case, uh, it was a, a, a pretty sort of egregious case where a, a prosecutor, um, you know, had a defendant pretty dead to rights on the evidence. Um, there was a habitual uh, felony statute. So basically just one of these laws that if you had enough prior crimes, then they're going to suddenly hit you with a really harsh mm -hmm. sentence. And so um, and so that's what happened um, in this case. Uh, the prosecutor said, look, you know, take this really unfavorable plea bargain or I'm going to hit you with the habitual uh, felon statute. The guy wouldn't take the plea, got convicted at trial because he was guilty of some minor theft and then challenged the fact that he'd been charged under this habitual felony statute, saying that it was a denial of due process, right? That the the, the prosecutor was punishing him for exercising his right to trial by charging him under this more serious statute. And the Supreme Court, you know, usually doesn't allow governments to punish people for exercising their rights. It gets a little complicated, right? The unconstitutional conditions doctrine is a mm -hmm. bit of a mess. And so this case with the habitual felony statute seemed to sort of tee up the issue, right? You can't if you can't be punished for exercising your right to appeal, how can you be punished for exercising your right to a jury trial? And the Supreme Court didn't know what to do about the fact that they had permitted prosecutors to dismiss charges that had already been brought in return for a plea bargain because the two seem functionally equivalent, right? Threatening to bring higher, more severe charges if you don't plead and agreeing to dismiss charges that have already been brought I think that's ultimately what ended up swaying the justices to allow plea bargaining, even though allowing plea bargaining under situations like that, I think it's pretty clear that what you're doing is saying it's okay for the state to punish you because you decided to go to trial. It's like yet another instance of the of the kind of functional economic type equivalence of omission and commission rearing yeah. its head to persuade. You see that in all kinds of areas. Of and law. you have to level up or level down. Once you realize that you're looking at a pair of functional equivalents and and you've let one go, you you really only have two choices. Yeah. Uh, and if you're not prepared to uh, take the one before that you'd said was okay and prohibit it, uh, you, you sort of have to let the one in front of you go too uh, because consistency is an important value, uh, as it surely is. Yeah. I, you know, I have to say, so as I was reading this, like one thing that kept coming up in my mind because I, I found a lot of your critiques of the, of the so-called virtues of the statutory system um, in, in, in light of these rule of law values to kind of derive from the mess that um, mass plea bargaining causes. The question I had, and may, you know, maybe the answer is in there and I just kind of didn't pick it up well enough, is is what is the mechanism by, what, by which you think that, that common law, criminal law would do a better job? Like wouldn't we still have mass plea bargaining with common is, – is it just that we would have fewer crimes? Is it – like how does it, how does it work? No, this is I'm I'm glad you asked this question because especially as you read the second half of the paper and it's talking about how common law crimes are superior to the current system of sort of overly broad and imprecise statutes, the obvious <laughs> right the obvious conclusion would be so maybe we should go back to a system of common law crimes. I actually don't think that we should. I think that the the plea bargaining genie is out of the bottle so to speak. Um even when we had common law crimes, nobody doubted that 
um, that legislatures had the ability to create new crimes through statutes. And I don't think that um, that legislatures or prosecutors or maybe even judges, right, would say, let's scrap all the statutes that we have right now um, and just stick with the common law categories. They would come back and they would they'd still have these really broad statutes. So all you'd be doing is adding common law crimes on top of the bad system that we already have. Right. So <laughs> so common law is not going to save you because even if judges have a role to play in shaping the criminal law, there's really no doubt that um, that legislatures also have a role to play if they want it. Yeah, so I'm not saying go back to common law crimes or, or add them to our, because all that would happen is we would add them to our current system. And, and I think the 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 legislature's part in like who's adding what crimes to a list of crimes um you know earlier christian you had suggested that there was some you used the word collusion a few times about legislators and executives cutting out the judiciary yeah, collusion is a loaded word these days so use, <laughs> use whatever word you'd like well uh, that's true but that wasn't my real my real concern my real concern is that the problem might actually be worse in the sense that there doesn't need to be any cooperation for this bad uh, dynamic to kick oh, in, see. because it seems to me that if 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 you just think about legislators looking after their own interests yeah. as they see them, right? E- they each might branch think, is hermetic incentives. So, yeah, yeah, like yeah, I don't know yeah. about the prosecutors, I don't know about the judges. Here's what I know: uh, I get elected on a pretty regular schedule. Writing things really carefully takes a lot of time, especially if I have to build consensus with these other turkeys. If we if we all just realize that we're in the same boat and we all want to jump in the same general direction, just write a few words, pass the damn thing, and move on to something else. Nobody nobody ever gets defeated for unleashing prosecutors to um, smash bad guys, and, and no one ever gets defeated for writing really sloppy legislation. And so the notice argument in favor, perhaps, of legislatures writing criminal statutes rather than judges articulating crimes in common law cases, right? Well, that presupposes that a legislature is going to behave like the people who wrote the model penal code over however many years that took, mm-hmm. right? Um, well, that just isn't what they're going to do. And and they're not going to do it, not because they're in some kind of bargaining process with the executive. It's because it's just not. So, that, so <laughs> they're just yes. trying to get their own job. Done. Yeah, and I mean, I'd I'd add, I think that that right, the dynamic that it's difficult to get consensus, it's difficult to be clear, that exists always for legislatures. I I think that um, one difference that you see when it comes to criminal laws is you don't really have an organized lobby on the other side to push for narrower laws or more um, targeted laws or even more clean, clearly written laws with a few exceptions, right? Obviously, if you if you're talking about like regulatory white collar crime, then you then you might see pushback there. But nobody's going to come in and say this new drug law that you've written is awfully sloppy. (laughs) Can Can you be more precise? I'm worried that some of the less culpable drug dealers are going to be swept up with this law. Yeah, there's no like it's common in kind of representation reinforcing theory, like Caroline Products theory, that discrete interests are minority. People can't represent themselves well right. in the legislature, right? But 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 it may also be true for like drug dealer adjacent people who could be swept up by sloppy language, right? Like there's no like drug dealer adjacent lobby either, right? And <laughs> right. But, no, so the, and but but I should yeah. add, right? When when people have tried to come back and to change these laws, legislatures, legislators, right, lawmakers will say on the record that the people who are less culpable probably won't be prosecuted under these laws. There's a there's a footnote in here. I, I include a quote from Chuck Grassley, um, who uh, when uh, when a bunch of of 
senators, including some Republican senators like Mike Lee from Utah, wanted to lower the mandatory minimums on some drug crimes, saying, look, you know, that's not a lot of drugs and that's a really long sentence. Chuck Grassley came back with statistics that he got um, from the, you know, I don't know if he got them from DOJ or if he got them from the U.S. Sentencing Commission. But basically, he showed that um, these laws were mostly being used to target people who had committed more serious crimes, but that they needed these harsh laws that swept in low-level offenders because that made it easier for prosecutors to plea bargain and get people to cooperate. So it's in the congressional record, right? This isn't an, basically, right, this isn't actually an appropriate punishment for somebody who commits the crime that's included in this text, but it is an appropriate punishment for more culpable people that we've, you know, pled down to a lesser charge. And see, this turns the anti-totalitarian, like, schoolhouse rock sociology on its head because, to the extent that's what's happening, it's almost like the idea that criminal law should turn on the on the grace and mercy of the executive is basically fascist, right? <laughs> it, 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 you right. Know, that we need to give all the tools necessary to the executive to uh, give it the value that you know to give it the store of value that it needs to extract what it thinks is good within the criminal law um, and, and mean, to like, fight crime. Yeah. Let me walk back from fascist really quickly. <laughs> Well, well it was know, Christian's I, word, not your word. It's, it's, no, it, look, it's my word alone. But like you, um, you get what I'm saying. I don't think it's actually an example of fascism. Let me say something yeah. in defense of the current system, right? So, what's a what's a crime that you're particularly concerned by? Um, uh, sex crimes against kids, um, sexual assault on college campuses. Oh, I thought you meant concern the other way. Crimes. I, yeah, no, I no, gonna, no. I was going to say contempt of cop, but yeah, the other way. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I'm just saying, like, pick a crime that you think is a really bad crime. Right. And you can find stories where you had um, a victim who didn't want to testify or juries not believing victims because of the clothes that they wore or something like that. And all of a sudden, you can see why a system like this looks really attractive. Right. Because our criminal justice system was initially designed to err on the side of acquitting guilty people rather than convicting innocent people. And if you think that a crime is severe enough, you don't like that system and you replace it with a different system. The problem that we've got is there's always um, there's always a group who thinks that a particular set of crimes is particularly bad. And so we need to worry about guilty people going free and you get enough of those crimes together and you tip the whole system so that the whole system is designed to punish people without having to go to trial. So if if we you said before uh, in response to Christian that, you know, going back to a a true common law, cr- common law of crimes regime is in, in addition to being unrealistic, it's uh, undesirable for a variety of reasons. But I imagine that I mean, po- posit the following as as a possible r- route forward. Um, if if all these problems exist the judiciary can look at what's happening and say, you know, there's an overriding due process problem that has a variety of manifestations. That is our responsibility. And one thing that this myth of the common law crimes not being in existence anymore, that it's all for the legislature, is that we've become too supine, we've become too relaxed about dealing with the due process problems that are crossing our desk every day. And we need to push back at that spot because that's the spot that would also get the – it it creates a feedback system 
where legislators would say, okay, well, I guess if we really want to stop that, we do have to be more clear. And so you have in the paper, for example, the discussion about the honest services thing in uh, wire fraud, I think it was. Um, and, And the idea that, you know, the lower courts had said that that was a permissible construction of the statute. The Supreme Court says, no, that's not, (laughs) it's not what this statute means in part, because if it meant that you have sort of comprehension problems and other sort of process, uh, other problems that I would say are due process oriented problems. Um, and so Congress quickly says, well, actually we do want that to be a crime. So we're going to do that again, but we're going to spell it out. Right. And the court says, oh, we still have some due process problems here. And that's good. That seems to me to sound very healthy uh, because the the judiciary is is sort of getting past the point that the fact that it's not a common law crime system means we don't have a lot of responsibility. Yes, you do. It's called the due process clause. Now get to work. Um, and the Johnson reaction to the Armed Career Criminals Act um, uh, finally getting overturned for, you know, it's void for vagueness. Um, I think it's funny that it was Justice Scalia that championed that, given how he's also one of the strongest champions of there's no such thing as common law crimes. But um, put that aside, uh, isn't the due process road a road that we could go down together to a better place? I mean, it's it's possible, right? I mean, we have the void for vagueness doctrine that says if your if your statute is is too imprecise then, you know, like in Johnson, they'd strike it down. Or in Skilling, which was the honest services case, they, um, I guess, sort of came up with a new statute um, because they didn't want to completely strike it down. I mean, that's one path. I I don't hold out a lot of hope for that because that path only helps you if they're being imprecise. It doesn't help you if they're being overly broad, right? And, um, and you've seen, you know, you see cases, um, the Supreme Court has had a few of them recently, where uh, the statute clearly includes trivial conduct. And then you see the justices sort of um, <laughs> trying very, very hard to say that the statute is ambiguous, right? Um, so that they can try to construe it in a way that doesn't seem entirely ridiculous. So what right? would be some exa- like, I'm, I'm thinking of an example, the bond case about um, oh you know, yeah, that's a good one. Smearing chemicals on the on the doorknob of, I guess the spouse of your paramour. Is, I can't remember. Thereby all the, violating the international chemical weapons ban treaty. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. So, right, but, right, but, right. So, so th- this is interesting though, because to me that that is very much, um, and and we could get into, and maybe this is the place one arrives at, is you sort of begin to discuss how judges should approach interpreting statutes, criminal or otherwise, which is, that's cool. Um, but to me, it does sound like a perfectly okay sort of due process oriented insight to say, you know what, uh, if this statute is as broad as you are now asserting it is, prosecutor, um, that that has a meaning that would take most people in the community so profoundly by surprise. They would find that so profoundly it's shocking. It's kind of a rule of lenity thing that you're. Yeah, that that um, but the, and and that's a that to me that is participating in a broader sense of the reason that lenity it seems uh, appropriate is it's it's part of a broader interpretive community that includes a fairness principle, a fair notice principle. Uh, that to me is a due process value. Yeah. So, so look, I, I agree with you guys that that is a due process value. I don't think lenity gets you there because again, the way the courts 
now use lenity. It has to be an ambiguous statute and all other tools of statutory construction must have failed you. So that's, that sounds like that's a change, maybe, or, or wouldn't? Uh, maybe, but then it's not, again, the, the, the statute in bond, like I, I love the bond case. I think it's fascinating. It's, it's of a part with a couple of other cases, that Yates case, uh, where the fisherman threw oh, back yeah, the another fish. another great one, yeah. And then the court said, right, um, had to say that a fish wasn't a tangible object. And Elena Kagan writes that biting dissent where she cites one fish, two fish, two fish red fish, mm-hmm. blue fish by Dr. Seuss. Obviously, a fish is a tangible object. The definition of chemical weapon and bond was clear and it was broad. And there is really no doubt that the chemicals that this woman used, even though you could buy them on Amazon, qualified. The Third Circuit ended up holding her conviction, said, look, the government's construction of this statute would mean that everyone's, you know, the, the, the kitchen under the, the, the kitchen sink cabinet is a chemical weapons cachet in everyone's house. But reading the statute, that's actually how Congress wrote the statute. Like Congress did it on purpose, right? <laughs> Getting back to the initial discussion here, right? They delegated this power to prosecutors and then prosecutors can pick and choose. So look, I agree with you that as um, as a sort of right principles of due process issue, that's deeply disturbing. But with the exception of, you know, the vagueness doctrine, and I, and I don't even want to include the rule of lenity there because it's been so watered down. But with the exception of the void for vagueness doctrine, the court just doesn't vindicate those values. I have a different essay about this that I wrote before I wrote this myth of common law crimes, where I just wanted to point out that the Right. These due process principles that you're talking about, notice, protection from arbitrary and discriminatory enforcement, right? Those principles that are underlying the vagueness doctrine, which the Supreme Court tells us is 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 one way of vindicating the due process clause. Um, those are routinely violated through this system that we have of modern criminal law. So that leads me to, I, I guess, I don't know if this is a, a radical statement or a not so radical statement, which is. I think the problem is how we see judges nowadays, right? We, and I don't know how much of this is caused by textualism. I don't know how much of this is a backlash against the Warren courts. But there's a, a story that we tell now about judges, that they have to be strict constructionists, that they have to worry about, you know, counter-majoritarianism, all of that stuff. And in the criminal law realm, that's actually really, really bad for individual mm-hmm. liberty. Um, really bad for individual liberty. But that judges did historically and should again play a very active role in interpreting statutes and interpreting them narrowly. And and they should do that like they shouldn't pretend as though like oh well the text of the statute or well the purpose of the legislature. They should just acknowledge that that's traditionally a role that they played that's a a role that they played when article three was written and assigned them the judicial power it's a role that they played you know up through the 1970s and 1980s and that role is really necessary and to the extent that they're no longer exercising their role that's part of the reason that we are where we are i got two things to say one, uh, yeah. following up on that. Well, so I'll, I will follow up on that, but I want to go back to fish for a second because I think it's such a fascinating example because, you know, teaching my kids the difference between like fewer and less, we'd always, you know, few, fewer <laughs> is something that you can count, right? And less is stuff that you, you can't count. Like, you know, there's less sand, but there are, you know, fewer rocks. 
Um, but fish is so is such a great example because in our everyday experience, a fish is, an, is a discrete entity that you count, right? So you would say fewer fish. But commercially, fish are measured in tons, right? So there are you know, you, you catch less or fish. like a school of fish is just a lot of fish. Right. But, you know, you know, in, in law and in just the fishery industry, you, you measure fish by tonnage. Right. It's just a mass. So it's so it's so interesting how that like this, that, that kind of maps on to uh, the ambiguity about about fish as a discrete entity maps on to like everyday thinking about fish. But all right. So that aside, we can come back to that if you want to. I can spend a whole hour talking about that. Uh, <laughs> Um, I'm totally happy but, to fight with you about Yates and that Elena Kagan yeah, was right. Uh, uh, she <laughs> clearly I, was. I, I think Kagan was right too, but I, I don't have a good enough memory of the case really to have a good position on. But here's what I was hoping like for the uh, for your second paper on this or for the book. It seems like it should be called a common law for the age of statutory crimes. Because mm. I think one of the things that Guido Calabresi did so amazingly in that in his book, yeah. right, was to say that to, to exactly what you were just saying, Carissa, like enlarging our notion of what courts can be and what role they actually play. Like looking at the world as it – the legal world as it actually is rather than as the, you know, the schoolhouse rock model where we kind of come in with preconceptions about how things are supposed to go. Looking at the world at how it actually is, courts can play a very positive role in increasing the visibility and accountability of, uh, of what legislatures do. I mean, for goodness sakes, I mean, Scalia's whole theory of of textualism was justified by its what he thought would be an increasing accountability of legislatures for their work product if we are textualist uh, um, with respect to constitutions and, and statutes. But like one need not agree with his like conclusion about that, but still agree with the aim Right, that um, maybe what courts should be doing is looking for ways to dialogue with legislatures and force things onto their agenda when various kinds of you know political economic failures within the legislature are preventing important things from coming onto their agenda, uh, raising the visibility of their work product in ways that matter. And one of the tools in, in the arsenal could be striking down statutes on non-constitutional grounds. I mean, that was his one of his prescriptions in a common law for the age of statutes in a mainly a civil context. And there's a whole discussion in there about the role of judicial candor, like when should judges kind of use subterfuge to, to force a, a kind of reasonable work within the legislature. But thinking about it that way might be this kind of middle way that you seem to be looking yeah. for. Right? It's, it's neither saying we should just jettison statutes and go back to the common law, nor should judges just be like judicial computers, which take in text from the legislature and like stupid agents just apply them. Rather, they should be like not faithful agents of the legislature, but faithful agents of the people and use their power to try to get legislatures to work better and prosecutors to work better. And it may be stuff like this West Virginia judge. Agents of the people and writing this down. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah. So, I mean, the, the short-term project, the next project, the, the, the project that I'm hoping to get out next month is, um, it's actually on, on clear statement rules, trying to say that, you know, the, the courts I think have, have adopted a, a, a more robust stance when it comes to some, values, right? Like federalism and separation of powers. Um, they, they've adopted these, these strong, clear statement rules in a way that, that, you know, they, they privilege certain substantive outcomes and they haven't done that with respect to criminal law mm. values, right? So they, um, you know, they sort of came close to adopting a clear statement rule for, uh, for mens rea, and then they sort of blinked at the last second and didn't do it. And so I think that, right, if, if we're looking for, um, solutions that courts could easily implement and actually wouldn't be particularly radical. I think clear statement rules is one option. I think another thing that we need to do is we actually need to recognize how radical 
contextualism is in the context of criminal laws, right? It's um, it's because maybe it fits with this schoolhouse rock notion of how government works. I think it's really appealing, right? People that I talk to who aren't lawyers, um, they love the idea of textualism and they love the idea of judges being careful not to let their own policy preferences or personal views touch on, um, you know, infect their yeah, ruling. It's so intuitively appealing, um, isn't it? It's so intuitively appealing. So I think it's part of it's trying to explain that textualism is actually not what judges ever really did. And obviously there are folks who've done work on that, right? So like Bill Askridge with his equity of statute and stuff like that. But I, I'd like to spend more time talking about it specifically in the context of criminal law and how in criminal law, right, like the um, the role of the judge is it's not just to it's not just to make certain substantive decisions that he or she might prefer as a matter of policy, but it's always to push in the direction of narrower laws and more liberty. The plea bargaining stuff, though, that's the stuff that really complicates everything, because even if judges were to take a more active role in interpreting statutes, the way we've sort of set up our system and the way we've um, sort of told judges that they shouldn't have motions to dismiss in criminal cases that are as robust as they do in civil cases and the leverage that's given to prosecutors to make people plead early and waive rights to other procedural rights. I think that there's a a deeper conversation to have there. I've started trying to work to work on a book about this that that really just tries to highlight how plea bargaining um, has shifted our system. And it's really not just plea bargaining; it's a lot of other things too. It's bail practices, it's um, uh, it's collateral consequences, it's civil forfeiture. There are all these different ways in which we've essentially decided that we don't want to have to have trials before we can punish people anymore. And trying to sort of look behind that and see um, not just why we got there, but if there's any way to sort of come back from it and what it would require. Because that problem that you just described about uh, punishing people without trials, that would be a problem whatever your view was of how judges should construe statutes when they're asked to. Like whatever your theory is of what judges should be doing with criminal law statutes or not or regular civil statutes or whatever, um, that's, you know, if they're asked, they should approach it in the following way. But but the other is a way to never have them be asked. Yeah. So it seems like it's orthogonal to the 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 judicial methodology questions. And what you described is what judges should be taking this more active role. I agree with a, a lot. And I and I guess what I was suggesting before was that um, the, the due process as a mechanism for, for taking that control back, it has a lot of promise, at least in my mind. You have, you're much more steeped in what the courts have been doing with the due process clause in the criminal law context. So I, I, I will take your guidance that there's less there than meets the eye uh, once you or, or, or that when you when you when you look at it more closely, you see it's it's just the T is just too weak. Um, and so there need to be more direct, perhaps sort of new doctrines or more direct uh, and candid statements about the, the fact that the judiciary has to take a particular role in making sense out of the criminal law as a body of law because liberty's at stake and that requires a certain level of scrutiny in, in what uh, Congress is criminalizing and how it's going about criminalizing it. Um, but the goal, and this is, you know, I'm sort of, I'm thinking now of our conversation last week with Jocelyn Simonson, you know, the, p- part of what's happening here is there's just too much darn stuff that's been made crimes. crimes. Yeah. 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 <laughs> like there's just too many ways to violate the criminal law for certain people. 
Yeah. Yeah, for certain people. But and, and there's a lot of like I, I get it also like a lot of administrative stuff can be crimes too. So it's 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 not, you know, uh, but anyway. But like what about this though? What if what what about um if judges created for themselves basically the power to pre-clear what prosecutors threatened in plea bargains, right? Not not what they can get an indictment for. Um but they can go beyond and ask whether the charge is justified. So that a plea bargain, you know, the, the prosecutor cannot use as leverage charges that the judge believes under the totality of the circumstances as then appear unjustified. Yeah, I mean, look, I think it's pretty clear, even as the, you know, as the rules of criminal procedure are written sort of across the country, that judges still, judges still play a role in the plea bargaining process. They have to as a formal matter, right? This isn't a, this isn't a civil case where the judge, where the, um, the parties are just agreeing to dismiss the case, right. right. Um, in return for some money, the judge has to be involved in plea bargaining because the end result of it is the entry of an order of conviction, right. A judgment of conviction. So the judge has to play a role there. There's no way, there's no way to, to bargain around it unless you're going to not have the end result be a conviction, right? Which some of these like non-prosecution agreements that prosecutors do with companies do. But if, if you want there to be a conviction, the judge has to enter that conviction. And judges could, and some do, play a much more active role in asking for the legal theory of the case that would allow a conviction here <laughs> and saying things along the lines of that legal um, theory is inconsistent with the mm-hmm. statute. Um, and so I'm going to have to dismiss these charges, right? Um, we also have a problem where people will plead guilty to a, a lesser offense that actually doesn't match up with the facts that they're alleged to have committed. Right. And so I've definitely talked to judges who have said, like, I cannot accept a plea to this charge because the the defendant's allocution isn't matching up with the elements of this crime. Those judges usually do it sort of under the radar, but there was a, a judge recently, a trial court judge in Ohio, um, who started doing this on the record and made a big stink about it and tried to tried to actually change um, the the rules in Ohio. The Ohio State Supreme Court wouldn't change the the court rules, the pr- the criminal procedure rules, and so this guy ran for Ohio State Supreme Court on a platform about plea bargaining and changing the rules of criminal procedure, and he won. <laughs> he just took office earlier this month. <laughs> wow! So <laughs> it's like remarkable. <laughs> I mean, that, judges always, they seem to get involved at the ex post, right after the bargain has been struck, and and they can say no, this was not a good deal for whatever reasons. But like, it seems to me like the the defendant is already in like bargaining mode at that point, you know, and it's kind of bought into the bargain. Do you see any value in judges, like, you know, telling prosecutors, you know, the most they can bargain with ex ante? I don't know. It's a good question. I mean, there's a there's a raging debate that I don't I don't have a particularly well informed view on about what judges' roles should be when it comes to plea bargaining and settlements more generally, right? So, um. Uh, the federal rules of criminal procedure say judges shouldn't be involved. A whole bunch of states actually allow judges to be involved in the process. Um, there are folks out there, Ron Wright and Nancy King have an article where they went out and did a bunch of empirical research on it. And frankly, I can see, I can see benefits and drawbacks on both sides. The major drawback being that, um, I don't see the judge as disinterested in that process. The judge doesn't want the case to go to trial. 
And so. Yeah, docket clearing incentives. Yeah. Yeah. What would be the evidentiary basis too, Christian, for the judge to play that ex ante role? Well, it would be similar to what happens, you know, in, in a um, in a grand jury or in an information where the prosecutor says, here's what we you know, have found and and here's what we propose to offer. And here's what we will threaten to charge. And the, I would imagine maybe the judge just based on that could take some things off the table as unjustified because, you know, going into a plea bargain overcharging. Now, I've not been involved in this. I'm not an expert in this in any ways. But my understanding as a really just a layperson on this is that it happens quite often that prosecutors threaten if you don't plea bargain. There's this other thing. It carries this much of a sentence, uh, which is huge. And it seems to me judges could say that that would never happen, <laughs> right? The, the practice in this community. Now, this is greatly enlarging the role of the judge, right? And um, right. But like the system just doesn't work. And I keep going back to the latest season of Serial to just show you that what, whatever we think we're doing with criminal justice, we're not actually doing. No, a procedure tweak between given what you just said and what Carissa said, it seems to me like a procedure tweak could be if you have – um, and maybe you maybe it's a thing that that more senior judges do that you get rotated into a spot for six months or a year where you do not you're not responsible for a regular docket so you don't have a docket clearing sensibility at that moment right and you're in the you're playing this sort of the ex ante role that this you just like described. the ombudsman kind of thing that yeah. we talked about last week exactly with, yeah, where Jocelyn. where you sort of get some there, there's a there's a another party at the table, not the prosecutor, not the defense lawyer, both of whom have their own agendas and interests and pressures um, to say, yeah, that's not that's not reasonable. Uh, That is that's not Uh, Mm -hmm. and that that would sort of shape. um, And of course, as as that was happening on a regular basis, it would shape people's behavior more more generally. Yeah, I mean. I think that there are some jurisdictions that have that have adopted something like this, right? That the judge who participates in the settlement isn't the judge who would then be the trial court judge. I mean, yeah. I, I think that that's certainly one path. I think that there are probably some easier procedural tweaks that that could maybe they wouldn't solve things. It would depend on sort of when they came into play and how much leverage the prosecutor has in plea bargaining. But but one you know one one possibility is that judges could treat motions to dismiss the indictment no differently than a motion to dismiss in a civil case. They don't right now. Right. There's a um, there's a green bag article about this from several years ago uh, where one of the one of the lawyers who ended up being on one of these big corruption cases where the Supreme Court sort of gave a narrowing construction to one of the the fraud case, the fraud statutes. Um, he said, look, like we filed a motion to dismiss the indictment and we made an argument the same argument that the Supreme Court ended up accepting. And I looked up the the order in that case that the district court judge returned. And it, and it said, these charges aren't dissimilar to charges that have been brought elsewhere, couple of citations. So this is going to go to a jury. Like, could you imagine getting an order like that as a as a civil litigator, what do you mean this isn't dissimilar to things that have happened elsewhere? I'm looking for a definitive ruling on whether this would, you know, whether the law supports their claim. That's just not what they do in criminal law cases. And um, <laughs> there's a guy at Wisconsin, I in Maine, he's done this really, really awesome historical research on the rules committees that drafted like the the initial version of the Federal Rules of Civil Procedure and Criminal Procedure. And the first draft basically treated the two as the same. And there were some prosecutors on that uh, that committee that made them change the rules to get f- to give fewer pretrial protections 
um, to criminal defendants than to civil defendants. Hmm. Yeah. Do we need? Yeah. Do we need to, Joe? Is it- yeah. I think. I mean, in terms of schedules, yeah. It, it, I'm frustrated because uh, what you just introduced was a great launching pad for the next three hours of our conversation, <laughs> which are not going to happen. Which is very frustrating. Um, because you and I both have to go be yeah, elsewhere. Yeah, but I can't thank you enough. I mean, it's like every law professor's dream to make people talk to them about their scholarship, right? So <laughs> we're we're going to put that on. The, that's going to go right on the dust jacket of the podcast. <laughs> every law professor's dream. Dash Carissa Hedrick, right? <laughs> that's right. That's right. And just because uh, I, I I sense in you a fellow traveler, Carissa, I will I will send you a little copy of my um this thing where I talked about Hudson as well, so that you can see how I connected oh, it to do. Wheaton against Peter which is this copyright case. So uh, NIP is what I spend more of my time on. So Well, and if it says anything about Erie, I'll show it to my husband and he'll get to say, I told you so. Yay! <laughs> and you know, I just think, I can't, I think I just said Carissa Hedrick. That's Did okay. I? I, I, yeah, see, this is like, you know, it as was my moment of triumph. As long as you don't call me Clarissa, I'm told, I really don't care how you Let's, say my last name. We said name. It at the beginning of the podcast, it's Carissa Hessick. And, That's right. Um, uh, but like that just shows in my moment of triumph, I managed to ruin everything. Yeah. <laughs> right. No, you you wanted to stay on brand, dude. <laughs> this is not the first time. This is not no no. It's not the fir- <laughs> it's not the first time I had to do something stupid. That's for sure. I've probably done like ten stupid things uh, uh, this morning already. But one of them was not calling up Carissa. That was a smart thing to do. And uh, I appreciate you coming on the show, Carissa. Yeah, thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. The first of many, I'm sure. <laughs>